Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. is to be here now. And then as Ram Dass at the end of his life said, the invitation is to be love now. And as we allow our attention to descend into the deep, your Emerson who says, deep calling unto deep. We wait in the stillness for that still, small voice that doesn't get louder, but gets clearer when the mind becomes still. When we are fully present, the breath becomes conscious. And we sense there is a coming home. And then we see the calligraphy above my head, I have arrived, I am home. Where Thich Nhat Hanh is admonishing us to go home. A place that is always already there waiting for our attention. And I hear Richard Rohr asking the question, what are you immersed in? Are you immersed in the problems of the world or are you immersed in that spaciousness of divine love? We're always at choice point. We had a beautiful workshop yesterday, beloved Pam, took us on a journey. And that journey doesn't end when you leave a workshop. It stays, it continues, it deepens. And one of the little sparkly moments was when Pam told a story of a woman handing a saying to somebody that changed their life. And how you never know when a saying will come to you and it will change your life. And as Pam was sharing that lovely story yesterday, all of a sudden, it's September 1973. Forty years ago, I'm in New York City and I'm lost. Someone sent me a card from California. And it was a quote by a man named Krishnamurti. And this lost young man in his early 20s reads, in oneself lies the whole world. And if you know how to look and to learn, then the door is there and the key is in your hand. No one 
gives you that key or that door to open except yourself. And in that holy instant 40 years ago, I began to look within. In oneself lies the whole world. And if you know how to look and to learn, then the door is there and the key is in your hand. But no one gives you that key or that door to open except yourself. And so as a young man, I began to go within, began to turn the key, I began to inquire, who am I? In that self-inquiry, I discovered there was a jubilant and beholden soul that was yearning to awaken. It's been a lifelong practice to honor that hidden splendor that we all share. So with that lovely reflection, I invite you to open your eyes to be here now in this space that we get to hold together, knowing that the space is really holding us. You know what's so amazing about life is I'm 75 years old and seven days. And there's so much grace in embracing this life at this stage for me. Because when I was young, I took everything for granted and I did what every young person did. I had goals and achievements and I acquired, I don't know how many degrees. They didn't mean anything, I can tell you that. Because I was denying this something within my soul that was longing for an expression. I'm going to be doing this series this month on The Endless Practice by Mark Nepo. And I was reading this yesterday and he said as a young boy, he loved the story of Aladdin and Aladdin's lamp. You know how he would rub the lamp and then the genie would come up and grant you your wishes? He says, on reflection, genie comes from the word genius and the genius is the soul's attendant. So when we rub the lamp of our consciousness, there is inherent within it this luminous thing called our inner genie or our inner genius that is attending our soul. So he reflects because he's had cancer twice and survived. He says, what if that is our true nature, the genius within, but we have to rub the lamp, we have to go within, and we have to pay attention. This something that is our true nature has always been seeking our attention from the time we were a little kid. And you know, I was doing my prayer with my prayer partner this morning, and he, he, Deepak Chopra has a new book. Trey said, you know, your new class in January, you might want to consider it. So the new Deepak Chopra book is all about how we have a quantum God. That God is in everything. That's why it's quantum. It's particle and it's wave, and we are that. Now, we've identified with the particle of the me person, but when the me person begins to dissolve, we begin to realize that it's all the wave. It's all this quantum reality. And you know who've known this throughout history were the, the mystics. My prayer partner was a Franciscan monk, and he quoted this monk from the medieval era. I can't pronounce her name, but she was a Franciscan monk, and she wrote a book called The Not Yet God. And she talked about how we need to move out of this old idea of a patriarchal God. Will someone get Gigi a glass of water, please? Oh, she does? Oh, she has it. Okay, I'm sorry. I just saw her coughing, and I have a little bit of that need to help. Love you bunches, Gigi. So the not yet God, she's talking about a God that is everywhere present. 
in everything. We see it in the darkness, we see it in the light. It's not something that is separate from us, but it's the all that is, that's everywhere. And so the invitation is to stretch our perception. And in this lovely book that was written in the medieval ages, she says, we are here to evolve into God. And God needs all of us in order to evolve because the particle needs the wave. And so what we did yesterday for me was a divine experience. Pam asked us all what we experienced. Everyone had a different experience. But my little boy felt he was playing in the field of mm, the divine imagination. And then I hear John O'Donoghue. You know, you need to listen to the divine imagination because that's where God speaks within you. So yesterday I was having this conversation with this little boy who every little practice, when I placed my hand in the sand, and then I didn't want to leave a footprint on the planet, and then where's my soul leaving a footprint? And then I kind of smiled. I looked in a mirror and I saw an old man, whereas other people wanted a good cry, I wanted a Botox. And so then I saw myself, and then Pam reminded me later that I've earned all these lovely uh, etchings on my face so that I can have more character. And then, of course, when I had to release something, all that came up from the mirror was the judgment. So, oh, good, I get to release all this judgment through a lovely little practice. And I found myself laughing as I was letting go of the judgments that just naturally came up. Anybody ever have judgments? No, of course not. And then I walked out, and we get to give our light back into the world. And it was so much fun to let my light shine. It doesn't matter. The light doesn't care where it goes. It just goes. And so... This week is the second week of the endless practice. The first week I spoke about we're always beginning. All you ever have is the moment. This is the moment the Lord has made. Could I rejoice and be glad in this moment? It's Christmas time, and for a lot of us, Christmas has memories. I know Reva lost her son right around Christmas time, and it, was it your husband as well? And my sister, of course, it was Christmas morning last year that I found out that they found her dead. And nobody knows what she died of. But I had this beautiful gift of awareness from my prayer partner this morning. He's doing the memorial service for a lady this week who died at 109. And he says she was sharp as a tack right up to the last day of her life. She went out to lunch with her daughter who was 83. She came back, said, I'm going to take a little nap and I'll go for dinner. She went for the nap and she left her body. So now the 83-year-old daughter is planning the service for her mother. And my prayer partner says, you know, I want to go like that. She just went on a Thursday. And my teacher used to say, you can die of a Thursday if you want to. And then I hear Neil Donald Walsh in conversations with God when he's having this conversation with the God of his understanding. He says, does the soul die? God says to Neil Donald Walsh, no, the soul does not die because the soul was never born. But in an instant, when the soul is no longer served by that body, the soul can choose to leave. And that's what this lovely 109-year-old woman did. And as he was sharing that with me, I said, you know, that's what my twin sister did. The last conversation she had was with my younger sister. And she said, you know, Terry, I'm done. I'm really done. You know, she teeth couldn't fit in her mouth. She had a prolapsed uterus. I mean, everything that could have gone wrong with, with a 73, 4, how old was that then? 4. What's going on with her? Come on in. I, and I think she went on a Thursday. You know, I think she, they, they still don't know what happened. They just found her in her chair. And she had left her body. Well, that was kind of sweet, wasn't it? So then um, this week I'm exploring the exchange that brings us alive. What brings you alive? Pam stopped by yesterday with her little grandson and she'd made some beautiful chocolate-covered nuts. I didn't wait till Christmas morning and they were so delicious. And this little boy just sparkled. His grandma was with him. And you wonder, who is helping whom? Is Thomas helping Pam or is Pam... You see this kind of reciprocal... And then my little... Uh, 
nephew on my little sister's side, Ben Ben, he's got that RSV, and so he's in the emergency room with the oxygen. And so even though I'm in a controversial religion, she did ask me to pray for him. And so I said, I'm sending you prayers. I know a little Ben Ben is on the mend. But then I began to explore, what is the exchange that brings us alive? And I hear the Bible every now and then. What you sow is what you're going to reap. And there's a Karen Drucker that says, I was working in the garden. I start my day with love. When I start my day with love, all I get is love, love. And so what we sow is what we're going to reap. And so if you want the aliveness, what brings you alive, well, then what does bring you alive? Trey and I, this is our last day of house-sitting for a little tiny cat, the one that went meow, meow, 5.30 in the morning, three days running. Well, now they're over there in Vietnam, and Trey and I are taking care of the little cat named Tracy. They had a boy cat named Trey after my husband, and when Trey died, he was so close to it, this little one is the spitting image of Trey. He came out of the gutter just like Trey did, a little black feral cat, three pounds, and so because it's a female, we just turned to Trey into Tracy. So now we go over every morning at 7 a.m., and there is Tracy. Meow, meow. She comes out of the closet, wherever she's hiding under the bed. Meow, meow. Nothing has changed. Change the cat litter, put the fresh food in the bowl, put the water, give her some love. And then we go by in the afternoon at 4 o'clock. Meow, meow. Here we are. We walk in the house. And for 17 days, I've been having this love affair with this little cat. They're coming home tonight, hopefully, and this uh, beautiful opportunity to love will just be a lovely memory in my head. And then as we're reflecting the exchanges that bring you alive, I shared with the folks here, I've rescued two water bugs in the center. One was yesterday morning, one was today. And in the past, I would have been the guy that would have squished the bug, call it a vermin, but now I see it as another life form. So life gives me these opportunities. And of course, I have the blind and deaf bug who um, I'm tethered to. And this morning, I got out of bed. He doesn't want to leave the bed. And he sleeps very interestingly. Pam, uh, Nancy Schramm knitted me a prayer shawl. She sent it to me maybe five years ago, and I meditate with it and pray on it. It sits on the bed. So it's lying on the bed, and the pug likes to lie in the prayer shawl, right in the middle. Then I cover him up with the prayer shawl. He goes sound asleep. And I texted her this Christmas because she sent me another thing that she's knitted. It's under the little tree. Like, and I said, the pug sleeps on the prayer shawl. And she says, he's surrounded by your prayers, David. And so now I reconcile. He's lying in a thing filled with prayer. He doesn't leave. He goes right to sleep. His little head sticks above it. But as soon as I go downstairs to work on the sermon, it's not a meow. It's a woof, woof, woof. Don't leave me. Okay. So I go up the stairs. It's raining outside. Usually when he gets up at 6.30 in the morning, he's going to have to pee. So I scoop him up. We go down the stairs, and it's raining outside. So what are you going to do with a blind deaf pug in the rain? And it's not light yet. So we get in the car and we drive under the overpass, the exchange that brings you alive. I get out. I'm in my pajamas. I take this blind deaf pug, put him under the overpass. Okay, you can pee here if you need to go. And it rains all around, but you're under the overpass now. He's not going to go. So we pick him up. We carry him home. Trey goes and grabs me an umbrella. So I'm standing in my pajamas with an umbrella. And after maybe... A minute, 60 seconds, he pees outside. What a privilege. I scoop him up. I carry him in. And those are the little exchanges that kind of bring me alive. And, of course, my beloved Seamus lost his mom this week, and I've been thinking so much about him. And as I walk out of my office, there is he and Tia, Tia looking bright in her lovely pink 
otter scarf. And it just was, it was like family, coming home to family. So what if when we have these moments of transition in our life, those are sacred moments. I'm so grateful that you're all still in my life. And um, shared with Shay, when my mom died very suddenly, I didn't have the grace of having a long period to get used to it. They said they'd been grieving her for a year. Mine was just like with my twin. I come into church. It's always on Sunday morning. Saturday night, I get a call. Your mother's had a heart attack. Sunday morning, I come in. We're flying back on Sunday. And I remember asking the congregation to hold me in their heart because I was a mess. I didn't know what to do. We didn't know if she was going to live or she was going to die. And of course, I come home, and it's about she's on life supports, and you have to make the decision. Are you going to keep or are you going to let her go? And um, the doctor said, you know, if we disconnect you, my mother said, I know, I know. And my little sister, the evangelical, screamed, have you been saved? Have you been saved? And my mother, in her beautiful way, she said, of course I have. And put her hand up like this. And um, so then we made that sacred moment around her bed when they disconnected her. It was so sacred, she looked up and she said, Mom. And then she closed her eyes. So she gave me a gift. I think our mothers come for us in those moments. At least that's what she gave to me. My twin sister was standing next to me, and so when my twin passed, I'm sure that my mother was right there for my twin. And so isn't that nice to know that there's this kind of bigger something around us if you can tune into it? So much of us we can't tune because we have a belief system, which is our BS that we carry around. Could we let go of this idea that we've got it all figured out and open to the mystery of belonging? So I opened this yesterday, working on this theme of the exchange that brings us alive. And Mark Nepo is at the moment when his father dies. He's having that direct experience. And I thought, holy cow, it couldn't get any more perfect than this. Let me give you a taste of him. He says, I don't know where I am here. He says, each moment, we just have the moment. So to move toward what is precious and how to restore our trust in life, only an open heart can achieve that and can receive and make sense of all this stuff we go through in life. So he says, when we can accept that life is the master teacher, and with that life, we're going to have loss. We're going to have transition. Life is the master teacher. We hope to discover little by little that more than finding heaven on earth, we're asked to release heaven by living here on earth. We bring the heaven here to earth. Now, what is the heaven? That heaven is the consciousness of divine love. That heaven is a peace that passes all understanding. Jesus said, seek the kingdom of heaven, the consciousness of oneness, and everything will be added unto you. So he's saying, could we bring heaven right here to earth? Humbly, he says, we keep everything connected by letting the light of our own soul join the light of the world. We're light beings. I'm moved to ask, what is your history with immersion? What are you immersed in now? What is your daily rhythm between the surface and the deep? What sustains you during periods of confusion and pain? Can you describe a moment of heaven on earth that you've known? And little by little, how are you learning to listen to both your gift and your emptiness? Could we have this direct experience with this mystery that's going on within us? And sometimes when we've had a death, it's transformational. So let me just skip over to the next little page. He says, right after his father died, this is for you, Shane, synchronistically. 
He said, my father's spirit left his body yesterday. And when he died and joined the sea of light, no longer contained or nameable, and yet once home in my study, my first sense of him without a body came in the, in the pour of the morning light through the high, thick branches of the old oak tree beside the house. Somehow the essence of my father poured through the leaves and the branches that hover over my study until like water filling a hole, that nameless sea of light filled the hole in my heart. Until a sense of him flooded my own window, making me stop, feeling me bathed in the part of him that had no words. So he's having that experience of oneness on the wave level, not the particle level. A little bit farther. Our grieving hearts open like those flowers to draw the particle of spirit that we love to us. We are skipping over. Um, I believe that we are already what we seek. It waits like a seed to be loved within us so that it can blossom. What if there is that thing inherent within us that our parents nurture? You know, Seamus was sharing all the love that his mother taught him, this deep abiding love. And I said, you know, she transmitted that to you. You embody that. And then I hear Thich Nhat Hanh who said, our parents do nothing less than transmit themselves. They live in you. When I saw Shun Rock running up this alley, this place in the church, and I was standing by the door, that Christmas thing, his mother had spoken, and he was so, he was glowing with his mother's message. I knew then that that's a love that is deathless and eternal. And so I get to share that with his mother, and then she smiles. Because sometimes we get confused. And then he talks about Aladdin's lamp. And he says, on March 23rd, 1709, records in his diary that he met an Arabian scholar named such and such, known as such and such, who was brought to Paris by Paul Lucas, a celebrated French traveler. The story takes place in China. And when he talks about this beautiful story, the unconscious lesson is that we are the lamp and the powerful genie, the attendant soul, that lives inside each of us. And despite all the travails and the misbegotten adventures, no one can possess the lamp or trick the genie. It's kind of fun to play with that, isn't it? With your imagination, this otter down there. Only the authentic care of our deepest being can bring forth this abiding spirit that lives within all of us. Well, isn't that kind of fun? There's a genius within all of us that wants to flower. And then he goes on to say, holding the lamp of life, of my life, he's a poet, the lamp of my soul close to my chest. He says, I've forgotten how to make the genie appear. And the word genie comes from the word genius, as I mentioned earlier. It is the original form that genius was not reserved for the brilliant ones, the few, but first meant the attendant spirit within all of us. And everyone has their own inner genie, an attendant spirit. We could call this spirit that attends us and guides us our soul, or what they call in Hinduism, the Atman, knowing that the Atman and the Brahman are one, the soul within and the universal soul are one. We could call it the Buddha nature. We could call it the Christ light. It's all the same. Could we find one language that we could all speak and understand each other? We could call it our center point um, and just tap into this beautiful presence. I'm going to skip to the very end. In an authentic way, our inborn gifts will show us our genius. 
my friend Helen Street said, find the three things that you are best at as a minister and then get everybody else to do the rest. Well, what if my gift is to connect to the oneness? Pam's gift is to bring out the inner child and let it play and discover something. Find that something, the gift, the presence of your attendant spirit, and it will guide us to become who we were meant to be. That's the title of this book, The Endless Practice, Discovering Who We Were Really Meant to Be. Nothing less than your inner genius, Miss Mary, who shines brightly. Often the journey begins in the dark cave of our trouble when we finally trust that there is this small lamp within. We carry it and it will transform us and show us the way out. What more could we ask for? And then his last little quote is, we are already what we seek. It waits like a seed to be loved into blossoming. And then you hear Ernest Holmes, the thing you're looking for, you're looking with, and you're looking at. It's all the beloved. It's that quantum God. It's everywhere. And then you see it in the smallest of things. Meister Eckhart, he who can see God in the smallest of things is better than seeing a Zoftic angel. It's everywhere. It's the one revealing itself again and again in multiplicity. Well, then it's kind of a game, isn't it? It's kind of a game. When Pam put that little light on the table and I turned my light on and I combined it with the other little lights, and then she, of course, capsulized it by, say, it started by this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And so you're kind of singing that little song as you turn the light on. And then when you join the others in silence, and we did most of this workshop in silence, which is really lovely, and a big part of it was active conscious listening. So when someone would share something from the heart, it would be mirrored back from the heart. So it wasn't a lot of advice giving or opinion sharing. No, it was a, a deep practice in listening. And could we hear what's really being said and hear what's not being said? There's always something underneath it all. And there's a sense of being held in the arms of grace when you do a workshop like that. It's a leveling. It wasn't a bunch of individuals. It was a bunch of hearts meeting each other, sharing from that heart space and being heard. And then I hear, is it Carl Rogers? All we ever really want is to be seen and heard. So my little black, deaf, blind pug wants to be heard when he does his little howlings by the bathroom toilet. I can't find his daddy. And you know what's so funny? All I need to do with him is to pick him up, Miss Rava. And if I'm holding him, he's fine. He just wants to be held. Is he my guru right now, Shay? I think he is because he's sharing with me. All any of us ever really wants is to be held. I swear to God. And I think I'm holding him, but guess what? He's holding me. I'll put him by my chair. He puts his head on my knee. He can't see me, but he just, it's like he's purring. When I go to tend that little cat, she lets me know she's in the closet hiding. She's afraid. And as soon as I come, meow, meow, she's, she won't leave me alone. She's butting her little head up against my leg. And um, is this the dance we get to do with one another? I was in um, Ireland with Trey, and we went to this museum, and I thought of Tia because in the back of the museum, they had a garden and there was a pond. And in the pond, they had one little otter sitting by himself. And I thought, this otter is lonely. He needs an otter friend. And I thought of Tia because she, she is Miss Otter. And the otters, they say they sleep holding each other's hand. I mean, literally, they are so social, this little animal. And there they had the solitary otter sitting in a little cage with a beautiful garden looking at me and I'm looking at it and my codependent wanted to just pick him up and take him back with me, but I can't do that. Yeah, so I hope Gigi's okay, Raul. Would you go check on her? Because I see you sitting there with your eyes closed and... It was Rumi that said, 
we're all here to walk each other home. And I think that's the greatest gift that keeps me alive, is that we get to tend one another. When I do these little things, you know, Herman is taking care of you, Michael. You do know that. Herman is the great love of his life. He's got four legs. So could we look at our, uh, our life in a, in a different way? Not as a problem to be fixed. Not as um, something we're here to acquire, more this, more that. There's no more in oneness. Could we find there's a deep sense of this is the life we get to. It's the master teacher. One, my, one of my master teachers is Richard Rohr. You all know that. Uh, he's a fragile Franciscan monk, and he speaks the truth in a way that God smacks me, as, as Seamus would say. And he says this, um, stay awake, all of those out there who've seen a glimmer of truth. Don't go back to sleep. And then he says this, staying awake comes not from willpower, but from a wholehearted surrender to the present moment, because all we have is the present moment. You know, my twin gave me the greatest gift when she transitioned. For a year, she's been with me. And I can truly say I'm closer to her in death, because we never talked on the phone. But now, I mean, she's with me. And she's the, the good part of my twin is she's young and she's playful. She's the little girl that I used to play with, Pam. That's why when Pam comes here, I see my twin because she was a lot like you. She knew how to have fun. And she would tell me I was too serious. And she was the one that taught me to like hot pink, Tia. I mean, that was my twin. I mean, she gave me a lot of gifts. So she says, staying awake comes not from willpower. It's being in the surrendering to the present moment as it is. And if you can be present, you will experience what most of us mean by God. And you do not even need to call it God. Just to be still and open to what is. And then those little moments. You know, my husband has OCD. and He goes over with me to do the cat. And he is meticulous about every little piece of cat litter and the bowl. And I'm just trying to have fun with the cat. So I get to experience Mr. OCD and Mr. Little Boy playing with the cat. But we get the job done. So he goes on to say this, Richard Rohr. He says, um, the supreme work of spirituality, which makes presence possible, is keeping the heart space open, which is the result of conscious love, keeping in the right mind, which is the work of contemplation and meditation. We're not here to think better thoughts. We're here to let the mind be still and discover the knower within, which is the divine feminine, the Sophia, and the knower comes from the silence. That's why spiritual practice is so powerful. You, Pam reminded us, first you go into the still place, and if you can rest long enough in the still place, well, then the silence awakens, and in the silence, there is peace. In the silence, there is unspoken joy. In the silence, there is release from a world filled with chaos. And then you rest. You rest in that silence. And then the knower comes up. You begin to listen to her. It's the divine feminine. The supreme work of spirituality is to go into this conscious love, into the right mind, keeping the body alive with contentment and without attachment to its past, to its past woundings, which is often the work of our healing. And in that state, you are neither resisting nor clinging, and you can experience something genuinely new. Those who can keep all three spaces open at the same time, will know the presence that they need to know. That means not just your mind, not just your heart, but your body as well. We've exiled the body. Somehow we've made it the object of sin or whatever and judgment. But the body, as Pam reminds me, never lies. So could we have a relationship with this body? 
Not as I'm going to whip you in shape so you can be some kind of version of what you should be. No, I'm going to listen to you when you're giving me messages. Then the body is included. People who can be simply present will know that this presence that cometh connects everything to everything. We're all interconnected. We're not separate. At the very end of the book, he says this. Observe, notice, sense the qualities of your heart space, and you will know that you have entered it because it will feel as if you are within a vast spherical space where you cannot find a boundary, an ending, or a beginning. He's talking about being held by divine love. And that, you know, we can talk content and we can talk context, but he says when the content and context become one, well, then the thoughts, which would be the content, are loving thoughts, but it's held in the context of divine love. So what if we could see that we are being held by divine love? We're being held by the trees. We're being held by these beautiful skies up with the clouds and the colors. We're being held by our garden. I should, when I walk into the sanctuary, I feel held by this space. Every corner has got love in it. These little trees over here are expressing love. These stained glass windows, these are the yantris of the world's religions. And this man from India said, if you meditate on one of these yantras, it can wake you up. They're all speaking metaphorically to a connection to oneness. And yet there are these different institutions, but they're all the light upon light, light leading light. This is uh, science of mind, is the descent of spirit through the subjective into manifestation. And Virginia Burroughs so wisely, she put a heart right at the center of that. Now that's not in the science of mind text, but thank you, Virginia, for putting a beautiful heart right at the center. So when you feel this expansive warmth, you can let it resonate through your body until perfect calm comes. Feel this inherent, always present blessing. It returns to us again and again. That's why we call it an endless practice. It's not something you do to achieve an end and then you're done. No, no. Moment to moment to moment. And I was sharing with my beloved Ashley. I saw this quote on my Zen calendar that said, May all my unforgiveness be released. May all my fears reveal their deepest meaning." And may all the unlived life in me blossom into a full expression of who my soul was meant to be. So could I take that personally, in a sense? If I have any unforgiveness, could I let that go? If I have any fears, could I let those fears, could I go into them and see, ah, it's revealing a pattern that needs to be re realized. And then could I water that little seed of spirit that wants to flower, the unlived parts of myself, each one of us. It never really goes away from you. You only go away from it. This divine love never leaves us. We go away from it. And then you hear Rumi who says, what you think of love are but subtle degrees of domination and servitude. And we hear a lot about that in our revealing service. He says, but true love, this mystery of the one, comes fully formed like the moonlight in the window. So could we open to a love that is so much greater than this transactional love that we have out here? I do for you, you do for me. Eh. No. True love comes fully formed like the moonlight in the window. When I met Tia and Shay, I met Tia at a wedding rehearsal. I had never met her. She was sitting across from me, and we instantly connected, fully formed. And she, I, from that day on, she's been my Anamkara. When Seamus walked into the old center, same thing. I, I felt the same connection. So what if that's the way it is? This love is so much bigger. It's not a contractual love. It's not a possessive love. It's, it's this something that shows up like the little cat. Meow. Here I am again. I'm tiny and I'm at your front door. Meow. And that's the same voice of divine love. Susan knows it. It's Penelope on steroids. Lastly, in this eternal practice, 
I went back to Jeff Foster. He nearly died this year from Lyme disease. And he shares in his ministry how even that moment of death is so sacred. And so in the endless practice, he talks about this encounter he had. And he calls it life's embrace. He said, your life situation doesn't need to be perfect for all of you chasing after the illusion of perfectionism. You don't need to be blissed out all the time. You don't always need to be certain or right. You don't need to be at peace all the time or joyful all the time. You don't need to be anything, in fact, he says, since you are everything already. And there is room for everything here in this vast and unchanging ocean of being with a capital B that we all are. Everything is embraced. Everything's accepted. An ocean that is radically open to all the waves of experience as they arise and as they dissolve. The title of the book is Fall in Love with Where You Are. So when we're going through these moments that are uncomfortable, could we know they're transformational? He goes on to say, this is life's embrace. You are the backdrop of stillness in an ever-changing gossamer world. Lovely image. Where nothing remains fixed and where all edges and boundaries are subject to decay and disillusion and this marvelous mystery that we share. You are what remains when all is gone, even the idea, all is gone. And I am what remains. The I am is what remains. He's kind of forcing us into an evolutionary spiral, don't you think, Miss Ashley? He says, what holds all of it and what allows all of it? He leaves you in that question. What holds all the darkness and the light? and allows for it all to be acceptable. He says, what cannot be doubted, even when there is doubt? (laughs) Who is reading these words right now? (laughs) The skeptic. Who Who or what is trying to understand what I'm saying? Mary smiles at me. This is not the perfection of the mind, not the perfect life, not the perfect body, not the perfect experience, or even the perfect moment, but the perfection that is the absolute embrace of all of this, exactly as it is, is this perfect embrace, and we're already there in the midst of some of the most tenuous times. Yea, that we walk through the valley, the shadow of death. Thou art with me. It's always there. So then he goes into this next little statement. He's with somebody on their deathbed. It's beautifully said. I was talking to my dying friend. He was having trouble breathing and was in a lot of pain. He was telling me how, despite this pain, it was all perfect somehow, in a way that he couldn't explain, that in the midst of the blood and the sleepless nights and the immobility, he had found a place of serenity, a place of freedom from the story of himself as the, quote, dying me. A plea, a place of freedom from all the dreams and the hopes that he had for the future, and a deep acceptance of things just as they are. How sacred is this? Life had radically simplified itself, and the moment was all that mattered now, and all that had ever mattered, he told me. And he says this, despite all this, I wouldn't swap this life I have for anyone else's. He found the grace right there in the midst of his experience. This was the kind of love they don't teach you in books. This wasn't the conceptual love of the mind, nor the fluffy, happy love that comes and goes and depends on things going my way. No, they don't have to go your way anymore. But it's rather an unconditional love, a blood and sweat love, a fierce and unyielding grace without a name, one that is indestructible and forever renewing itself in the furnace of presence. 
blowing anything unreal before it to smithereens. We want a real love, Michael, not some made-up fluffy love that tells the world I'm perfect, whole, and complete. No, I'm going through my death experience now and I'm finding the sacredness of it. So pain was my friend, he says, and it was my final guru whose lessons were brutal and unexpected but ultimately pointed to nothing less than this total spiritual freedom by my choice to put my attention on my soul that would never die. His infinite nature, which is deathless and eternal. Well, isn't that nice to know before you get to that threshold when you need to know the truth about yourself? He found it right at his moment of passing. Wow, so the endless practice doesn't stop. It's not something we just do here at the Center for Spiritual Living, but it's how we meet life when life throws us those curveballs. Wow, isn't that sacred? You know? So, uh, shall we do um, a little collection and then we'll do a song? Okay. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. Let me do treatment and then song. Okay. So, Janet, why don't you ring the bell? That's perfect. I get disoriented when I have to, you know, on my desk, there's a beautiful thing. It's a title for a series that I haven't done yet. It's called Beyond Order. And I think I'm already there because the order is always a surprise to me. Okay, the order. We rang the bell. Okay, now we take our attention, this valuable possession that we have, and let's let it descend into the cave of the heart. The Sufis say, wherein God lies. And so we move into that spacious, loving place, putting our attention there. And then we realize that this spacious, loving place is holding us. We smile to being held by divine love. And we realize as we rest, this place of rest, that we don't need to do anything other than to open and trust and allow. And if something should arise, maybe something that is discordant, we let it be held by that love. And just like the little cat and the little dog, once it's held by divine love, it stops making a demand. And it knows that it is loved. And we get to do this for ourselves and for each other. And perhaps this is the greatest exchange that brings us alive, to love one another, to know the truth when sometimes another can't to know the truth that when we forgive, we set ourselves free. It has nothing to do with the other. It sets us free from that prison of self-righteous resentment. We're no longer holding that. And so forgiveness is a sacred dance that we do. And when we meet those fears, we have the capacity to discover its deepest message. We're no longer running away from the fear or denying it or calling it bad. And when we open to the aliveness within the soul, and we invite it to flower as our mm, creative expressions, perhaps, in my case, as compassion, awakening to the suffering of the planet, another quality of this divine love. And so we open to this magical idea of bringing heaven right here to planet Earth and then discovering that Earth is a heaven in herself and she's been holding us all along. And then the boundaries begin to fall away, that which is, keeps us separate, the edges of life, all dissolve. And we hear Rumi say, all swimming in this ocean of love ends in drowning. 
There's no more separate me. There's only this ocean of love experiencing itself. And then you hear Rumi again saying, oh, drop, oh, drop. To be wooed by the ocean, give it up, drop. The ocean for a drop. And then we smile to the metaphor as we experience ourselves in this vast space that Richard Rohr calls the warmth of the love that we all are, the vastness of this love, this quantum, this quantum God that's everywhere expressing as particle and wave. And we are that. And so the practice right now, this eternal practice, is to sit in the chair, to open our heart, to stop worrying and thinking, just for this brief period of time, and to listen. And listen, listen, as Yogananda would say, to my heart's song. I will never forget you. I will never forsake you. I will never forget you. I will never forsake you. So in this practice, we get to listen. 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 To the heart's song. And then find that smile that lies stretched in smiling repose in the genius of your being, the awakened soul, in the light of the one that knows no other. And then we hear this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. It shine, it shine, it shine, it shine. And guess what you see in the mirror of life? You see the light everywhere. You see the light of your father coming through the, the leaves of the trees. You're not going crazy. You've just stepped into another dimension. And so it's with gratitude and deep surrender that we open to the mystery of belonging to the universe and we continue to practice heart-centered listening everywhere we go, everywhere we go. And so it is. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org. To create a brand new life.